I do not assert that I am about to relate is in all its particulars absolutely true. Not understand me that it is not true, but I do not feel that I can care to make an assertion that is that is more than likely to be received by a sceptical age with sneers of incredibility. I will content myself with a simple narration of the events of the evening, the memory of which is so indelibly impressed upon my mind, and which, where I were able to do so, I should forget about any sentiments of regret whatsoever. The affair happened on the night before I fell ill of, of typhoid fever, and is about the sole remaining remembrance of that immediate period left to me. To me. Briefly, the story is as follows. Notwithstanding the fact that I was overwrought a practice of my profession, it was early in March. I was preparing my contributions for the early Christmas issues of periodicals for which I write. I had accepted the highly honourable position of entertainment committeeman of at one of the small clubs of which I belong. I accepted the office supposing that the duties connected with it were easy of performance, and with absolutely no notion that the faith of my fellow committee men, in my judgment, was so strong that it would ultimately manifest a desire to leave the whole programme for the club's diversion in my hands. This, however, they did, and when the month of March assumed command of Canada, I found myself utterly fagged out, and at my wit's end at to know what style of entertainment to provide for the club, meeting to be held on the evening of the 15th of that month. I had provided already an unusually taking variety of evenings, in which one in particular called the Martyr's Night, in which living authors writhed through sections of their own works, while in human audience every man of whom has suffered, even as a victim, then suffered, sat on his tensor of camp stalls, puffing smoke, as when you five score of free fags into their faces and gloating over their misery it was extremely successful and gained for me among my professionals brethren the inevitable title of Machiavellian Junior. This performance, in fact, was one now uttermost in the minds of the club members, having been the most recent of the series, been prophesied by many men whose judgments were was unassailable that no man, not even I, could ever conceive of anything that would surpass it. Deposed at first to question the accuracy, prophecy to the fact that I was, like most others of my kind, possessed of limitations, I came finally to believe that perhaps, after all, these men, male Cassandians, of whom I have thrown, were right. Indeed, the more I racked my brains to think of something better than the martyr's night, the more I became convinced in that achievement. I reached the zenith of my powers. The thing to me to do now was to hook myself securely to the zenith and stay there. But how to do it? That was the question which drove sleep from my eyes and deprived me in my period of six weeks. My reason, my hair departing immediately, lately upon the roast aspiration thereof, are not uncommon after symptoms of typhoid. Typhoid. It is typical March night, this one upon which extraordinary incident 
but we related took part place. It was the end of the night. It was that kind of night that novelists use when they are handling a mystery that is abstract would amount to nothing, but which is concrete, a bit of wild, weird, a windy nocturnalism. Sends the reader into hysterics. It may be, shall I not attempt to deny it, that it happened upon another kind of evening, a soft, mild, balmy June evening, for instance, my own experience would have seemed less worthy preservation in the amber publicity, but that reader must judge for himself. For, but that the, the reader must judge for himself. The fact alone remains that upon the night when my uncanny visitor appeared, the weather department was apparently engaged in getting rid of its remnants. There were a large percentage of withering blasts in the general make-up of the evening. There were rain and snow which altered in patterning upon my window pane, and whitening the apology for woad that stands three blocks from my flat on Madison Square. The wind whistled, as it always does upon occasions of this sort, and from all the corners of my apartment, after the usual fashion, there seemed to come sounds of a supernatural order, the effect of which was to send cold chills off on their regular trips up and down the spine of the victim. This instance, myself. I wish that at the time the hanked quality of these sensations had appealed to me. That is not... That, that it did not do so was shown by the nervous, highly nervous state in which I found myself on my as my clock struck eleven. If I could have realised at that hour that these symptoms were the same old Fredbear preparations or the appearance of a supernatural being, I should have left the house and gone to the club, and so avoided a visitation that then then intimate. Had I done this I would should doubtless also have escaped the typhoid since the doctors attributed it that misfortune, the shock of my experience, which, in my land wearied state, I was unable to sustain, and what and what the escape of typhoid would have meant to me, only those who have seen the bills of my physician and druggist for service rendered prescriptions compounded are aware that my mind subconsciously took thought of spirits was shown by the fact that when the first chill came upon me, I rose and poured out for myself a sift bumper of old reserve rye, which immediately swallowed. But beyond this, I did not go. I simply sat there before my fire and conjured my brains for an idea whereby my fellow members of the Gutterberg Club might be amused. How long I sat there, I do not know. It may have been ten minutes, it may have been an hour. I was barely conscious of the passing of time. But I do know that the clock in the Dutch Reformed Church steeple at 29th Street and 5th Avenue was clinging out the first stroke of the hour of midnight when my doorbell rang. Therefore, if I may be allowed the word, the tinnitation of my doorbell had been invariably pleasing unto me. I am fond of company, and company alone was betokened by its ringing. Since my creditors gratified a passion for interviews at my office, it provided chance they happened to find me there. But on this occasion, I could not at the moment tell why 
Its clanging seemed to be the very essence of discord. It jangled with my nervous system. As it ceased, I was conscious of a feeling of irritability, which is utterly at violence with my nature outside of business hours. In the office, for the sake of discipline, I frankly adopted a curious manner, finding it necessary in dealing with office boys. But the moment I must stop shop behind me, I leave. But, but the moment I leave the shop behind me, I become a different individual entirely, that, and have been called a motless sunbeam by those who have seen only that side of my character. This, by the way, must be regarded as a confidential communication. Since I, I am at present engaged in preparing a vest pocket edition of the psychological works of Scoot and Penahar in words of one syllable, and were it known that a publisher was entrusted a magnificent precision of that indulgent juggler words and theories of a motless sunbeam, it might seriously interfere with the sale of the work. I may say, and I may say too, that is this request that my confidence be respected, entirely disinterested. As in such, I decline to do the work on the royalty land, insisting upon the payment of a lump sum considerably in advance. But return I heard the bell ring with a sense of profound disgust. I did not wish to see anybody. My whiskies low, my quintine bills few in a number. My chills alone were present of a fuse mouldering upon oscillation. I pretend not to hear it, I said to myself, resuming my work of glazing at the flickering light of my fire, which, by the way, was the only light in the room. Ting, 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 went the doorbell, as if to answer to my resolve. Confound the luck, I cried, jumping from my chair, and coming to the door with the intention of opening it an intention, however, which is speedily abandoned, for I approached it in sickly fear came over me, a sensation I never known seemed to take hold of my being, and instead of opening the door, I pushed the bolt to make it more secure. That's a hint for you, whoever you are, I cried. Do you hear that bolt slide? You, I added tremendously, for from the other side there came no reply. Only a more violent ringing of the bell. See here, I called out, as loudly as I could. Who are you, anyway, anyhow? What do you want? There's no answer, except for the bell, which began again. Bell wire is too cheap to steal, I called again. You want wire? Go buy it. Don't try to pull mine out. It isn't mine, anymore. anyhow. It belongs to the house. Still there's no reply, only clanging the bell. And then my curiosity overcame my fear. With a quick movement, I threw open the door. Are you satisfied now? I said angrily. But I addressed an empty vestibule. There was actually no one there. But I sat down on the mat and laughed. I never was so glad to see no one in my life. But my laugh was short-lived. What made that bell ring? I suddenly asked myself. And then the feeling of fear came upon me again. I gathered my somewhat shattered self together, sprung to my feet, slammed the door with such force that the corridors echoed to the sound, slid the bolt once more, turned the key, moved a heavy chair in front of it, then fled like a frightened hare to the sideboard in my dining room. There I grasped the decanter, holding my whiskey, seized a glass from the shelf, and started to pour out the usual tram. 
when the glass fell from my hand and was shivered into a thousand pieces on the hardwood floor. For, as I poured, I glanced from the open door, and there, in my sanctum, the flicker of a random flame divulged the form of a being, the eyes of whom seemed fixed on mine, piercing me through and through, to say that I was petrified, but dimly expresses the situation. I was grantized, and so I remained, until my, by a more luminous flicker from the burning wood, I perceived that the being wore a flaming red relicti. He is human, I thought, with the fault the tension of my nervous system relaxed. I was able to feel a subsequently well-developed sense of indignation to demand an explanation. This is a mighty cool proceeding on my part, I said, leaving the sideboard and walking into the sanctum. Yes, he replied, a tone that made me jump. It was extremely sceptical, a tone that seemed as it might have been acquired in the damp corner of some cave off the earth. But it is a cool evening. I wonder what a man of your coolness didn't hire himself at to some refrigerating company, I marked with a sneer that would have delighted the soul of Classius himself. I have thought of it, returned the being calmly, but never went any further. Summer hotel prison properties proprietors have always outbid the refrigerating people, and they turn have been laid low by millionaires who have hired me on occasion to freeze out people they don't like, but who persisted in calling. I must have confessed, though, my dear Harren, that you are not much warmer yourself. This greeting is hardly what I expected. Well, if you want to make me warmer, I retorted hotly, just keep on calling me Harren. How the deuce did you know of that blot of my execration, anyhow? I added for Harren was one of the crimes of my family. I had tried to conceal my parents very fast in the name of Harold Spencer Callaghan upon me at baptism, at baptism at no, for no reason than other than my rich bachelor uncle, who subsequently failed and came in charge upon me, was so named. I was standing at the door of the church when you were baptized, returned the visitor. As you were an interesting baby, I've kept an eye on you ever since. Of course I knew that you discarded Harriman as soon as you were old enough to put away Charlie's things. And since the failure of your uncle, I've been aware that you desired to be known as Spencer Cullion. But to me, you are always ha- have been, and always will be, Harriman. Well, don't give it away, I pleaded. I hope to be famous some day, and if the American newspaper for a paragrapher ever got hold of the fact that once in my life I was a harem, I have to harem to let me alone. That's a bad joke, harem, said the visitor. For that reason, I like it, like it though I don't laugh. There is no danger of you becoming famous if you stick to humour of that sort. Well, I don't like it. Well, I'd like you to know I put it, it put in my anger returning. I'd like to know who... The Baratheon are you? What in Karam you want? And what in the name of the seven hinges of the gates of Singapore you are doing here this t- time of night? When you were a baby, Harem, you had blue eyes, said my visitor. Bonny blue eyes, as the poet says. What of it, I asked. This, replied my visitor, is, if you have them now, you can easily see what I am doing here. I am sitting down and talking to you. Oh, oh. 
are you? I said with fine scorn. I had not observed that. The fact is, my eyes were so weakened by the brilliance of the necktie of yours that I doubt see anything. Not even one of my jokes. It's a sculpture. That tie yours, in fact, I never see saw anything so red in my life. I do not see why you complain of my tie, said the visitor. Your own is just as bad. Blue is, is never as withering as red, I retorted, at the same time caressing the scarf I wore. Perhaps not, but um, if you look in the glass, Heron, you observe that your point is not well taken, said my visitor, vis a vis, calmly. I acted upon the suggestion. I looked upon my reflection in the glass. Lighting a match to facilitate the operation, I was horrified to observe and my beautiful blue tie, which I was so proud, had some manner changed, and now was the same aggressive hue as that of my visitor, red, even as a brick it is red. To grasp it firmly in my hand, to tear it from my neck, was work for a moment, and then, in a spirit of rage, I turned upon my companion. See here, I cried, I've had enough of you. I can't make you out. I can't say that I want you to. You know where the door is. You shall oblige me by putting it to proper use. Sit down, Harem, said he. And don't be foolish and ungrateful. You're behaving in the most extraordinary fashion, destroying your clothing and acting like a madman generally. What was the use of ripping up a handsome tie like that? I despise lad Hughes. Red is the jockey's colour, I answered. But you did not destroy the red tie, he said, said he. With a smile, you tore out the blue one. Look, there it is on the floor. The still, red one you still have on. In, investigation showed the truth of my brother's assertion. A flaunting steamer of anarchy still made my neck infamous and before me on the, on the floor. An almost unrecognised mass of shreds lay in my cherished Xillian tie. The revelation stunned me. Tears came into my eyes, trickling down my, uh, over my cheeks, fairly hissed into the feverish heat of my flesh. My bone muscles relaxed. I felt limp in I fell limp into my chair. You need stimulant stimulant, said my said my visitor calmly. So give take a drop of your old reserve and then come in come here to me. I've something to say to you. Will you join me? I said asked faintly. No, returned the visitor. I'm so fond of whiskey, I never most of it. Bless it. Yet in which you simulate is deaf to the rye. Never realised that, did you? No, I never did, I said meekly. And yet you claim to love it. Bah, he said. And then I obeyed his command, drained my glass of dregs, and returned. What is your mission? I asked, when I had made myself as comfortable as possible under circumstances. I had to leave you your woes, he said. You are homopath, I observe, said I. I said, sneer, you are homopath in theory, a lalopath in practice. I am not using unintelligent, said he. I have failed to comprehend your meaning. Perhaps you express yourself badly. I wish you to express yourself to Zululand, I retorted hotly. What I mean is, you believe in a civilized, similar business, but you describe large doses. I don't believe troubles like mine can be cured on your plan. A man can't rid his stock by adding to it. Oh, I see, you think I've added to your troubles. I don't think so, I answered, with a fan glance at the won't I? I know so. Well, until I laid my plans before you, I see you don't change your mind, said my visitor, significantly. All right, I said, proceed, only hurry. I've got to go 
bed early. As a rule, I'm getting quite. It's getting quite early now. It's only one o'clock," said the visitor, ignoring the sarcasm. "But I will hasten, as I have several other calls to make before breakfast. Are you milkman?" I asked. "Are you a flippant?" He replied. "Aram," he added. "I have come here to aid you in spite your worthiness. You want to know what to provide for your club night on the fifteenth. You want something that knock the." Martyr's night's silly. Not exactly that, I replied. I don't want anything to so only good to make all the other things I have done see failures. That is not good business. Would you like to be hold? Held as a discoverer of genius? Would you like to be a responsible agent for the greatest acquisition a skill in a certain direction ever seen? Would you like to become the most famous impressionado the world has ever known? Now, I said, forgetting my dignity, I wonder the enthusiasm with which I was admired by my visitor's words, affected more or less with his undeniably magnetic, magnetite spirit. Now you're shouting. I thought so, Hiram. I thought so, and that's why I'm here. I saw you on Wall Street day to day, and read your difficulty at once in your eyes and resolved to help you. I'm a musician, and one or two little things have happened, of late which to make me wish to prick date in public. I know you are were after a show of some kind. I come to offer you my services. Oh, pshush, I said. The members of Glatterberg Club are men and brains. What children? Cardix are tricks are hacked-eyed. It's like the hand shows pale. Do they indeed, said the visitor. Well, mine wouldn't, if you don't believe it. I'll prove to you what I can do. I have no Perfectimilia, I said. Well, I have, he said. He spoke. A pack of cards seemed to grow out of my hands. I must have turned pale as he suspected happening. My visitor smiled and said, Don't be frightened. That's one of my tricks. Now choose a card, he added. And when you had done so, toss the pack into the air. Don't tell me the card. It's alone. When it will fall onto the floor. Nonsense said it's possible. Do as I tell you. I did as he told me. To the degree only, I tossed the cards in the air without choosing one, although I made a feint of doing so. Not a card fell back to the floor. Then every one disappeared from the view in the ceiling. It had been, in, if it had been for the heavy chair I rolled in front of the floor, I think I would have fled, should have fled. And how's that for a trick? asked my visitor. I said nothing for the very good reason, and my words stuck in my throat. Give me a little cream de menthe, will you, please? said he, after a few moments' spills. I haven't a drop in the house, I said, relieved to think this worldly, his worthwhile going could come to anything so earthly. Shh, Madam, he ejected, apparently in disgust. Don't be mean. Above all, don't lie. Why, man, you've got a bottle full of it in your hand. Do you want it all? He was right. What I came from I do not know, but beyond the question, the graceful slim neck bottle was in my right hand, and my left hand is a glass of its critic form. Say, I grasped as soon as I was able to collect my thoughts, what are your terms? Wait a moment, he answered. Let me do a little mind reading before we arrange preliminary duties. I haven't much of a mind to read tonight, I said, answered wildly. You're right there, said he. It's a dim novel. It's like a dime novel, a mind of yours tonight. But 
I do the rest that I can with it. Suppose you think of your favourite poem, and after running it over your mind carefully for a few minutes, select two lines of it, considering them, of course, for me, I will tell you what they are. My favourite poem, I read to say, is Lewis Carroll's Checkerbook. A fact I was ashamed to confess to that to a stranger, so I tried to deceive him by thinking of some other lines. The effect was hardly successful. For the same, for the only other lines I could call to mind to the moment were Rudyard Kipling's rhyme, a post that fitted, which ran year by year in precious patience. Vengeful Mrs. Bobbin sets wanting for the slurry babies of her lips series fits. Oof, rejected my visitor. You're great, Helen, you are. <coughs> then rising from his chair and walking <coughs> to my poet's corner, the magician selected two volumes. <coughs> there, said he, handing me the department ditties. <coughs> you find the line you tried to fool me with at the foot of my page 13. Look, <coughs> I looked at the way they lay, the vile sentiment, serious sentiment, in all the mystery of type, staring at me in the, in the eyes. And here, added my visitor, opening Alice in the looking glass, there is a poem that you, that all your mind holds all the philosophy of life. Come to my arms, my blemished boy, he chuckled his joy. I blushed and trembled, blushed away. You could, should discover the weakness of my taste, trembled at his power. I don't blame you for colouring, said the musician, but I think you said that Gatterberg was made by men and brains. But did did you think you could stay on the rolls a month if you're aware that your poetic ideals are submitted up to the Jabberwock and the slurries he fits? My taste may, may be far worse, I adored. We answered, yes, it might. You might have stopped, stooped to liking some of your own verses. I ought really to congratulate you. I suppose you taught you the visitor with a sneering laugh. This roused my error in again. Who are you, anyhow? What have you? Why? What that you come here and ask me to, to task? I don't mind really. I like anything I please, and without asking your permission, I cared more for the P- Peterkin papers than I do for Shakespeare. I don't want to be accountable to you. And that's all there is about it. Never mind who I am, said the visitor. Suffice to say, I am myself. You know my name soon enough. In fact, you will pronounce it involuntary. The first thing when you wake in the morning. And then he shook her head wonderfully and felt himself growing, grow rigid with fright in my chair. Now, the final trick, he said, for a moment's pause. Think of where you most like to be. At this moment, I saw my parrot put you there. Only close your eyes first. I closed my eyes and wished. When I opened them in the billiard room, the Gettysburg Club, with Pitkins and Thompson. For God, heaven's sake, Spencer, they said, in surprise. Where did you drop them from? Why, man, you're as white as a sheet. Oh, what a necktie. Take it off. Grab, hold me, boys. Hold me fast, I pleaded, fiddling on my knees in terror. It won't, if you don't. I b- believe I died. The idea of returning to my sanctum was intolerably dreadful to me. Aha! laughed the musician, for even as I spoke to Perkins and Thompson, I s- found myself seated opposite my fair visitor in my room once more. 
It couldn't couldn't keep you an instant from me stumbling you back. His laughter was terrible. His laughter was terrible. His frown was splintered. I felt myself gradually losing control of my senses. Go, I cried. Leave me. Or you have you have the crime murder on your conscience. I have no. He began, but I heard no more. That that is the last I remember. That fifth. Fearful night, fearful night. I must have fainted, and then have fallen in a great deep slumber. While I woke, wait, it, it was morning. I was alone, but undressed in the bed, unconsciously weak, and surrounded by medicine bottles of many kinds. A clock on my mantel on the other side of the clock room indicated that it was after ten o'clock. Great bells a pub! I cried, taking note of an hour. Ah, I am an engagement with Barlow at nine. Then a sweet-faced woman, who I always uh, learned, afterwards learned, was a professional nurse, entered the room, and within an hour I realised two facts. One, that I was, had lain ill for many days, and that my engagement with Barlow was one for six weeks unfulfilled. The other, that my midnight visitor was none other than, and yet I don't know. His tricks certainly were worthy of the individual, but Perkins and Thompson asserted I never entered the club at night that night. I surely, and surely, if my visitor was Belzebub himself, he would not have omitted so important a fact of success as my actual presence in the billiard room on that occasion would have been. Besides, he was altogether too cool to have come from his reputed residence. Altogether, I think this episode most uncountable, particularly when I reflect that while no trace of my visitor was discovered in my room, the next morning, as my nurse tells me, my blue necktie was was in fact in reality found upon the floor, crushed and torn in a shapeless bundle of ragged rags. As for the club entertainment, I told that despite my absence, of, I was was successful, wonderful success, redeemed from failure. Treasurer of the club said, by the voluntary service of a guest, executed a mission on one of the car, my cars, who executed some sleight-of-hand tricks, and made the members tremble, and whose mind-reading feats performed on the club's butler, not only made it necessary to him to resign his office, but to close the house committee, whereas the several cases of rare wines had mysteriously disappeared. <laughs>